We're so glad you're here to listen to this week's sermon from Park Street Church. Park Street is a historic congregation located in the heart of Boston. But more than that, we're a community of people from all different backgrounds who believe and are united by the good news that Jesus is Lord. Visit us at parkstreet.org to learn about our community. I would like to draw your attention this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 30 and 31. That's on page 952 in the Bible in your pew in front of you, but I do invite you to open up with me to this text. We're continuing a series that we've been in in a reflection on the cross in 1 Corinthians 1, and we'll finish up in chapter 2 next week. And up to this point, we've seen that God has worked in a manner that shocked and surprised the world. In Christ crucified, in the simple, unadorned proclamation of the cross of Christ, and then as we saw last week, in the selection of a group of people who had no status in their culture. They were not wise, not strong, and not of noble birth. And as we've seen over the past few weeks, in working in these ways, God has subverted the systems of value and worth in the culture choosing to work outside of them, those things in which we typically actually boast that we think are a big deal. But in God's economy, our prior status or worth in any of those systems brings nothing, contributes nothing to the new work of God in Christ. And therefore, there is no boasting, as Paul says in verse 29, as we ended with last week, no boasting in his presence. No flesh can boast in the presence of God. All we can do is just humbly receive the gift of God, the man of the cross. And as we continue to unpack this in verses 30 and 31, Paul is going to expound this gift of God, the man of the cross, in a profound way. This is one of the most densely packed verses in all of the New Testament regarding the gospel, and it's a joy to be able to unpack this together with you this morning. As he expounds this gift, he urges them and us to behold afresh the glory of the Lord, to be overwhelmed at God's gift and provision, because that and really that alone is the remedy to our self-glorification. It is to see and behold God in all of his manifest perfections and glory, and to be overwhelmed with how great and holy he is, and that this great and holy God is actually for us working on our behalf, on our side. So that's our aim this morning as we unpack these two verses in three parts. The man of the cross is our home, that's part one, our provision, part two, and our boast, part three. And one and three are much briefer, two is the more of the substance of this message. But first, the man of the cross is our home, our home. This may sound a bit strange, but look with me at the opening lines of verse 30. And because of him, or quite literally, from him, you are in Christ Jesus. The reality that Paul affirms here, and he uses this language throughout his letters, is that they are now in Christ Jesus, or in the Messiah Jesus. The Greek word Christos just means Messiah, so it's fair to mention this either way. To be in Christ or in the Messiah is to realize that Christ is the context, the source, the terrain, the sphere of our lives. It's to acknowledge that we live in him, 
that we exist in him. In Colossians 3, verse 3, Paul writes, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your life is hidden with Christ. We could rightly say that Christ is our home. We typically think about our home as the place that we live, don't we? If somebody asks, well, where's your home? You would say, well, in Malden or Newton or Jamaica Plain or Dorchester. In the case of Paul's original audience, they would say, well, in Corinth. When Paul writes that we are in Christ Jesus, he's saying that Christ is the home of our lives. He is the place where we live. And his home is not like our homes, which we typically leave in the morning and return to in the evening. His home might be a little bit more like the shell of a turtle that goes with the turtle everywhere that it goes. Only I would encourage you not to think about Christ as your personal shell, but rather as a, a canopy that spreads over the entire cosmos from which no one can really escape, that covers over all the world. Wherever we go, whatever we do, whatever challenges you're walking through this morning, Christ is our home. And to borrow from St. Patrick's famous prayer, he is with us, before us, behind us, beneath us, above us, and on and on. We are in Christ Jesus. We exist in him, and he is our life. And let's be clear, as Paul is saying this just at the beginning of this verse, that Paul would argue, and all of Scripture would teach, that there is actually no genuine life outside of him, outside of Christ. Well, you might say, sure, I'm breathing, I feel alive. But the biblical claim is that life outside of Christ is sort of like the life of a beached whale that is cut off from the ocean in which alone it can truly thrive and survive. To be outside of Christ is to be dead in our trespasses and sins, as Paul mentions in Ephesians 2. It's to lack a spiritual heartbeat. For the Corinthians, as Paul reminded them in this text already, as we saw last week, they, were, they would continue to be the low and despised things of the world, the things that are not. But in Christ, in the Messiah, the world has suddenly changed for the Corinthians and for us. We have a new home and a new life in that home. They are now unioned with the living Lord of the universe, the one in whom all of God's promises are yes. To be in Christ Jesus is to be liberated and forgiven and cleansed. It is, in short, to be truly alive, not merely with oxygen in our lungs, but with the life of God, the breath of the Spirit, the new creation life in us. It is to be born again, as Jesus says to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Paul writes to the Corinthians in his next letter, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. This new home is the realm of life, the only realm of life, of abundance and power and purpose and provision. And it is a home which gives us the only status that really matters. So when Paul says at the beginning of our verse, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, he's saying to them that they have this new life, new home. And did you catch that at the beginning of the verse? Because of him. Or from him. This is somewhat obvious throughout Paul's opening chapter here, but the him here refers back to verse 29, the one before whom no human flesh can boast, that is, before God, the Father. And so what Paul is saying is, you're in this new home. You're in Christ Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus. 
by virtue of what God has done and God alone. He's reminded them in verses 26 through 28 that there was nothing in them that made them in particular worthy of God's choice to bring them into this new home. Nothing in light of the standards of the day. They didn't measure up in any way, shape, or form. This is a gift. It's a gift plain and simple. A gift not given to the worthy or important, but a gift given to the unworthy because of the grace, love, and mercy of God alone. So if Christ is our home, then secondly, let's think about him as our provision. What is it that we, when we come into this home, what are the benefits and blessings of this home? Of what this, this gift of God, this man of the cross provides for us, what does he provide? When you move into his domain by faith, when you come under his canopy, when you yield to his summons to repent and follow him, what are the provisions that you receive from him? Jesus, this man, is the one, verse 30, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Now, before we expound those particular phrases and words, let's just stick for a moment on this reality that there is a he mentioned here, the one, Christ, the Messiah. Before he became to us anything, and this is critically important in Christian doctrine, we need to remember that this person was glorious and awesome and of the highest status there could be in and of himself, before he became anything to us, Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, the Son, co-equal with the Father and the Spirit. And when we speak of Jesus, we must remember that we speak of this divine person of the Son, the one who shared with the Father and the Spirit in the work of creation. Later in the letter to the Corinthians, Paul will write, in chapter 8, verse 6, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist. And then he says, And one Lord, Jesus the Messiah, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. In the beginning of the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Let's just remember when we're speaking of the Messiah, when we're speaking of Jesus, we are speaking of the exalted second person of the Trinity, the divine Son. Before we say anything about what he became to us, let's remember who he is in his person, uniquely so. This divine person, the one who had this highest position through whom the world was made, this one, Paul says in verse 30, became to us wisdom from God. How did he do so? Well, the whole argument that we've been looking at for the last several weeks is about Christ crucified. In love and with a desire to carry out the Father's will, this second person of the Trinity, the Divine Son, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. That's Philippians 2. Or as John's Gospel says so profoundly and succinctly, the Word became 
flesh and dwelt among us. And walking among us, dwelling among us as a man, uniting our human nature to his divine person, sharing with our flesh and blood and grief and pain and joys and sorrows, being like us in every respect except without sin, he then offered himself up on the cross as a perfect sacrifice for the whole world once and for all. Philippians 2 again, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And let's not think for a moment that this death was somehow by accident or that it was forced upon him. Jesus says in John chapter 10, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. This is why he came, why the eternal Son of God took upon himself human flesh and entered into our world. He came in order that he might be pierced. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that's why on the cross, in those words in John 19, he cries out, it is finished. The sacrifice has been made. The work that I came to do has been accomplished. It is finished. Sin is forgiven and defeated. So in the words of Hebrews, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He offered himself upon the cross once to bear the sins of many as a single sacrifice for sins. This is why he came. It was to offer himself to his father on the cross as a sacrifice for sins. Let's be really plain and clear about this for a moment. It's important that we're plain about the things that Scripture teaches plainly. We are image bearers of God, created to reflect His glory and authority in His created order. And yet, we are bound in sin. We are held in bondage to sin and death, And we are guilty before our holy and righteous judge, the Lord of glory. We are by nature, Paul writes in Ephesians 2, objects of God's wrath. That is his measured and determined response to that which destroys and mars his creation. And because of all of this, the church father Athanasius wrote in the 4th century, he says, from all of this, there was no escape. Calvin writes in the 16th century, the situation would surely have been hopeless had the very majesty of God not descended to us since it was not in our power to ascend to him. No amount of human wisdom, no sophisticated Greco-Roman rhetoric, no amount of law-keeping, no increase in status, no technological innovation, no government program, no political leader, Nothing could set us free, could cleanse us. Try as we might, and we try, we try, and we try, and we try, we try harder and harder. This will never work. Remember what Paul said in verse 21 of our text, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. God set it up in this way that we could not climb and arrive at the place of finding him. In his own wisdom, God set it up this way. We could never get there. Back then it wouldn't work and it doesn't work today. There's no way to God, no way to life, no way to liberation, no way to freedom and cleansing and genuine peace apart from Christ and him crucified. 
the divine person of the Son leaving his eternal glory, condescending to take on himself human flesh, to be born as a baby, that he might grow up and die on a Roman cross. It's in this way that the eternal person of the Son became to us wisdom from God. Christ crucified to the Jews who demand signs, a stumbling block, to the Greeks who are searching for wisdom, folly, but to those who are, who are being saved, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And Paul expounds what he means by Christ having become wisdom to us from God with three more words in verse 30. Righteousness and sanctification and redemption. The cross of Christ is how God fulfills all of the promises that he made to Adam and Eve, to Abraham, to David, and to his people. This is how God will renew his covenant. And these words here that Paul unpacks the wisdom of God with, these words describe the realities of the covenant people of Israel, a covenant people that is now being redefined around the person of the Messiah. Think about it for a moment. God's old covenant people were redeemed. That is, they were liberated from slavery in Egypt. They were granted covenant status of righteousness before God to be in right relationship with him. And they were sanctified. They were set apart from the rest of the nations of the earth and called holy. And then they were called to grow in that holiness. Remember, be holy as I am holy. And what Paul is saying with these three words is that now Christ in him crucified has made you and me and those in Corinth the new covenant people of this almighty God. And we see this, when we see this, we can only right, rightly respond to the wisdom of God with words like Paul erupts with at the end of Romans chapter 11 when he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. So let's think about these three words briefly. In Christ, we're given a new covenant status of righteousness. We have been justified by God, not because of anything in us, but because of our being incorporated into the Messiah himself. You are in Christ Jesus. And in Christ, and because of Christ, we are granted the gift of righteousness, not a righteousness of our own based upon something that we already possess or that is inherently ours or something that we are working to earn, but a righteousness from God that depends on faith, as Paul writes in Philippians 3. And what this means is that the divine judge, having forgiven our sins, has declared us to be in the right. It's a kind of forensic declaration, a declaration of status and legal standing. But that can never be separated from our union with Christ and our participation in the Messiah. That is where we find this declaration to be true. In Christ Jesus. In Christ and in Christ alone, we are justified, declared righteous. Our sins are forgiven and we are granted proper covenant status as the new covenant people of God. We are given this status then to go to the last word as those who have indeed been redeemed and set free from slavery. But the slavery from which we have been set free was not from Egypt, but rather slavery, our slavery to sin. Christ is our redemption. In him and in him alone, we are liberated from our true bondage. No longer slaves to sin, we now become slaves to righteousness. Like the beached whale, though breathing, we were on a track to a sure and certain death, to judgment and eternal separation from the God who is life. 
but by the grace of God. And by Christ crucified, we have been liberated and set free, rescued and thrown back into the conditions of life, and now are permanently on a completely different trajectory. But God, being rich in mercy, Paul writes in Ephesians 2, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There it is, that identical language which Paul uses here, in Christ Jesus. Christ is our redemption. And as those redeemed and righteous covenant people, we are also declared to be holy. And called, as the people of God were called long ago, to grow in this holiness. Christ is our sanctification. For through his blood we are cleansed. Paul opens his letter to the Corinthians Earlier in chapter 1, on this theme of sanctification, he says, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Called to be saints, sanctified in Christ Jesus. Later in chapter 6, he actually says to them, Look, a lot of you were running down this path, and you, you were living lives of notorious sin, public lives of sin and debauchery. And then he says, But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In Christ, in Christ crucified, you were made to be the holy people of God in him and by the Spirit. And you were cleansed in and through the blood of Jesus. In some, Paul, as he expands the wisdom of God here in these three words, is saying that you are the new covenant people, righteous holy, redeemed. And Christ is your righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. This divine person who took upon himself our nature that he might die and suffer upon a cross. He became to us wisdom from God. I'm sure that there are some uh, home makeover show fans in the room, like Fixer Upper or Love It or List It. I'm not going to ask you who you are, and I won't make you raise your hands. <laughs> but you love, don't you, watching the transformation of a home and then the response of perhaps a young couple when they see it for the first time because it fits them and it meets their needs and it's a source of great joy and it's beautiful and it surpasses their expectations. When Paul says you are in the Messiah Jesus, he is saying that we have come into a new home by the grace of God. And in this home, we are bathed by the cleansing blood of Jesus and washed clean from all our sins. In this home, our sins are actually separated from us as far as the east is from the west. In this home, we take refuge under the roof of the shelter of his wings as the storms of destruction pass by. The walls of this house are to us a strong tower against the enemy. And this home becomes our hiding place to protect us from all harm. In it, we lay our heads on the pillow of God's tender mercy. For of the Messiah, it is said that a bruised reed he cannot break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Every faucet in the house flows endlessly with the living water that forever quenches our thirst, allowing us to drink deeply from the river of his delights. And we are routinely nourished in this home on himself, Christ, the bread of life, the bread down, come down from heaven and on the milk and solid food of the word of God. 
And throughout the entire home, the cool and enlivening breeze of the Holy Spirit blows gently. This is the perfect home. Here's how Ray Ortland describes coming home to Jesus in the future. It's Advent. We look forward to Jesus' return. But this could also be applied even now to the moment when we come home to Jesus for the first time or for the hundredth time. Here are Ortland's words. The moment you step into his eternal world, here's how it might go for you. Remember that our Lord did not say, I go to prepare a place. What he said was, I go to prepare a place for you. So when you show up, you won't look around and say, well, okay, I can get used to this, whatever. You'll look around and say, no way, he thought of me. He understood my crazy heart. And you'll take off running, first of all, toward him. You'll hurl yourself into his arms with such abandon you might knock him over. He won't mind. You'll both get up laughing. And you'll look into his eyes, and he'll look into your eyes, and he'll ask, would you like a hug? And you'll say, I sure would. And he'll wrap you up in the biggest bear hug you've ever felt. He'll say quietly, take as long as you want. I've got time. And you'll feel the healing start to flow down into your deepest pain. You'll start discovering what it really feels like to be human. So there you'll be in his ginormous bear hug for maybe a year. And when you feel ready, you'll stand up and say, thanks, Lord, that felt good. And he will smile and you will smile. Two royal figures and dear friends forever. Again, that's an anticipation, but it's also a present reality by faith that we can come into his arms and receive his warm embrace. Christ became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption in a way that nothing else can, not our greatest efforts. We bring nothing. We contribute nothing. We add nothing. Christ crucified and Christ alone. He became to us wisdom from God. And Christ alone is our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. All is gift. A sheer gift. A shocking gift. A gift of the God crucified in the person of his son on a Roman cross. Do you know that gift? That brings us then to our final and brief third point, verse 31. So that, did you catch that there? Look with me back at the text. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God in his wisdom intended all of this, that all would be of the Messiah, of the crucified king. So that, and Paul then quotes what most scholars think is Jeremiah 9, 23, 24. It's not quite the same, but... It's close, or it could be close to 1 Samuel 2 as well. But it's a passage that deeply resonates with Paul's argument up to this point. We read it earlier, but let me repeat the final two verses of our reading. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. This should sound familiar to Paul's argument here in 1 Corinthians 1. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Paul says, so that in verse 31. Christ is all of this to us. 
He is the tremendous gift for us. He is our home, our life, our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption. He is everything to us. So that the one who boasts will boast in the Lord. Yes, Corinthians, if you're going to boast, and remember, they were trying to boast in their wisdom. They were even abusing the things of God, the gospel, to try to advance on that track. Remember that it is from God the Father that you are in the Messiah, Jesus. Remember that you are only here by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Exalt only him. Only the Lord. And we could understand either the Lord Jesus here or the Father, as Paul quotes the Old Testament. If you're going to be proud of anything in your life, Paul is saying, please don't let it be something that is trivial, that is passing away, that merely gets the crowd happy around you. But let it be of him who died for you and for the world. Let it be of him who is your home and your provision. Let it be of him without whom there is no life and no hope. Let it be of him who is gentle and lowly, who deeply cares about you and knows your deepest needs. Let it be of him who is your faithful and merciful high priest, who always lives to make intercession for you as you walk through trials and troubles. Boast of him who will never change and never leave. Boast of him and him only. So we exalt him, do we not? And we lift him up, and we long for him to increase, that we might decrease. We magnify him and behold him. Jesus and Jesus crucified. The wisdom to us from God. Jesus above all. This is what God intends he intends for Jesus to be magnified and exalted as the one and only Savior and King. And he is doing this, as it says in Philippians 2, that God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. May it be that when he returns at that unexpected hour, that he returns to find us contentedly at home, boasting in him, glorying in him, magnifying him, and not far from home, furiously and frustratingly climbing up the ladders of worldly status and glory. As the wonderful late 19th century hymn says, softly, and tenderly Jesus is calling, calling for you and for me. See on the portals he's waiting and watching, watching for you and for me. Come home, come home. You who are weary, come home. Earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling, O oh sinner, come home. How do you get home? It's the same whether you're coming home to him for the first time or returning home after wandering far away or perhaps even just unaware of the home that, you've, that you're in or taking it for granted. Simply receive him. Repent of your wayward pursuits, your rebellion, your sin, and receive him. Call out to him. Yield to him. Give your life over to him. Declare him who is the Lord of the universe to be your Lord as well and he will rejoice to bring you home. He has been looking for you, longing for you, and when you return 
He will embrace you with his nail-pierced hands, kiss you, put the best robe upon you, put a ring upon your finger, put shoes upon your feet, and then he will kill the fattened calf. To celebrate and rejoice alongside of his holy angels that you have returned home. And he will say to you with a great and warm smile upon his face, Welcome home. Let's pray. What a tremendous gift we've been given in you, Lord Jesus. Pray that you would draw some of us to receive that gift even now for the first time to come home to you. For those of us who have wandered away, Lord, please, may we spend no more time feeding on the pods that the pigs have eaten when there are riches in your house that, that you have prepared for us. Lord, for those of us who have grown cold, or lukewarm, pray that you would awaken us again to the glorious riches that you have given us in yourself in the person of your Son, who has become to us wisdom from you, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. We glory in the gospel, O God, and we boast in you. May we be proud of you, glory in you, declare you with all of our lives, we pray this in Jesus' name.